nice to have everybody here today. Nice that you could make it. God's going to bless us, right? Even though I preached from this passage some years ago in Anderson Church, I've been asked to preach on it again. Some of the people that asked me are not here today, and some of them that asked me are here today. See how you can't miss just any Sabbath? So take a Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And just as we open God's Word, we're going to invite God's Spirit to be with us. Father in heaven, as we open your Holy Word, we invite your Holy Spirit to be our guide, to be our teacher. These are the words of Jesus this morning, so we want to lay the right emphasis. Um, we thank you that Jesus is here in our midst. In his name we pray, amen. amen. It's an amazing thing, it's a solemn thing to think that Jesus never misses a Sabbath in church. Jesus is here today, he's reading our hearts. He's impressing me on what to emphasize to you. And so as we turn to the book of Revelation, <clears throat> we see seven churches mentioned, and I'm going to speak on one of those churches today, and it's the church of Ephesus. <clears throat> as Ephesus, huge cosmopolitan area, had the temple to Diana or Artemis, both names are used, supposedly coming down from heaven, fertility goddess. This building was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I believe, but a lot of promiscuity, a lot of immorality. Does Jesus want promiscuity, immorality in his church? No. So the church is to be a light on a hill. It is to be shining in its purity, in Christ's purity. And as we worked our way through the book of Acts not too long ago, we saw certain things mentioned about the church of Ephesus. For example, this is just before I read Revelation. Well, let's read Revelation. You've just opened to that. So let's read Revelation first, and then I'll take you into a couple of passages in Acts. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first, and if you do not repent, I will come to you 
and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, I believe it is, we see the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. You've heard of Aquila and Priscilla. You've heard of Apollos, and I know you've heard of the Apostle Paul. All of these people had a major influence in establishing this church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus flourished, and it grew. And of course, Paul did missionary exploits. Uh, three years he was in Ephesus. This is a very, very important church. And there was a riot in Ephesus. You can see that in verse 23. I've preached on this before, so I'm not going to spend much time in that. In verse uh, 35, um, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? And so their livelihood was being affected by the preaching of the gospel. We had this riot and caused a lot of problems for Paul and for the early church. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, is saying farewell to the elders, the leaders in Ephesus. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 28 of chapter 20. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherd of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So there we can see the warning of the Apostle Paul to the church leaders in Ephesus. And what we're going to learn today is that these church leaders in certain areas were very diligent. So we're going to see Jesus Christ commending them. And we all like encouragement, don't we? And it's a good thing, I suppose, to encourage before you censure. Probably most of us don't like to be censured by the Lord Jesus Christ or criticized by the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have both to deal with today. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's a wonderful thing, really, to think that Jesus Christ is visiting his churches. He knows exactly what's going on here at the Anderson Church. He reads every one of our hearts. 
He knows where we've made a contribution, where we've failed to make a contribution. He knows our good points and our weak points. Think of the church of Ephesus. In the book of Acts, we see the church going from strength to strength. We sometimes can look at these seven churches in terms of history, and we can say the first century church seemed to be a victorious church, seemed to be a church that made tremendous progress in a very short period of time, seemed to be somewhat of a pure church, and on and on and on we can go. But now, 30 years later, we're looking at a different church. Different church in Ephesus. Many of the early followers of Jesus have died by this time. A new generation has emerged. And we can, we can see that these church leaders had been very faithful in certain areas. That's mentioned in verses 2 and 3. But before we go to that, to that, in just a moment, we see Jesus and the church, Jesus trying to talk with the church leaders, Jesus speaking. Some, some people feel these are the most complete addresses that we have by the Lord Jesus Christ here in Revelation. Jesus holding, Jesus walking. In Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 12, the promise is made by Jehovah, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So Jesus holds, Jesus walks, Jesus knows. He knows exactly what the church in Ephesus needs. Isn't that encouraging? Just like the doctor knew exactly what was necessary to do surgery on me. He knows. And he knows exactly what Anderson needs too. It wasn't too long ago that we said Jesus is the leader of our church. And we don't want to just say that theoretically. Who can argue? Which Christian can argue with that? We want to say it in practice. We want him to work through every one of us so we're all in harmony, even though we will disagree on numerous things, that we will walk in harmony in the Spirit. So let's look at his encouragement to the church very quickly. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested, those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Now Paul warned them many, many years earlier, and they, it looks like they'd been faithful to, his, to Paul's counsel. You have persevered and have endured hardships, that's probably persecution, for my name, and have not grown weary. So deeds, hard work, perseverance, zeal. I think we could say it was a zealous church. I think it was a church that was standing for the truth, and even though the false teachers had infiltrated, and they're probably the Nicolaitans, also a few verses later, uh, the Balaamites, 
Some scholars think these are interchangeable terms. Can most of you remember the story of Balaam in the Old Testament? Uh, hired to curse Israel. And when he tried to curse Israel, what happened? Just blessings came out. He was the renegade prophet. Very interesting study on Balaam. And one of the, one of the counsels that he gave to the pagan king who was trying to destroy Israel was to bring immorality amongst God's people, and then, then God's blessing will be withdrawn from them. So we have this phrase, Nicolaitans, and a few verses later, the Balaamites, and most scholars seem to feel it was a form of Christianity, if we can call it that, that was very permissive, probably did not feel that the commandments of God should be kept by Christians. Um, if we turn to 1 John, and I'm just doing this from memory, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 5, uh, we will see John, and remember the epistles of John, the book of Revelation, all written near the end of the first century. We will see John uh, talking a lot about the importance of keeping the commandments of God, and those that don't are liars. So that's a very strong language. Obviously, it was needed uh, by this um, patriarch, so to speak, in, in the church. So you've heard me talk about Gnosticism before. This is probably a form of Gnosticism. By, we're near the end of the first century. We know by second century, this became a huge threat to the early Christian church. So, compromise, worldliness, invading the church is not acceptable. And Jesus commends these leaders for taking that on and standing strong in that area. So there's the encouragement. But here's the criticism and censure. Yet I have this against you, verse 4, you have forsaken what? Your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Now, I thought about that a lot, because it's obviously a key phrase in this passage. What does it mean to forsake your first love? Is it taking us back to the period in the book of Acts, to the early formation of this church in Ephesus, when they seem to have the zeal they seem to be a light upon a hill. They seem to be understand the gospel. They seem to be appreciative of what Jesus had done for them by dying on the cross. Think of it individually in your own life. When did you first come to Jesus? Was there an excitement there? It's pretty hard to imagine anyone coming to Jesus and not being, be passionate and zealous and excited over something like that. Was that how it was in your life? I know it was in mine. And how quick I was to share Jesus with whoever would listen, and most didn't. 
And then the early persecution that comes with that, the mocking, the laughing, all of that was part and parcel of it. But to have this love of Jesus just, just bursting out of you, and you are so grateful that he would come and die on the cross for you. Is that what John wants us to, or Jesus wants us to remember? Is it a love for God that we need to remember? Go back. Is it a love for the brethren? Do you remember last week's sermon? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is not an optional extra in the Christian life and in the Christian church. It has to pervade everything. So last last week, and if you think in the context of 1 Corinthians, it's all getting along with one another and love pervading all these spiritual gifts. Here, it's a church in Ephesus who has done a lot of things right, but somehow has lost their focus. Somehow the passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and maybe for the brethren and maybe for the world too. Is it possible that a church can be, be quick to share these things in its infancy when it's a new church, when it's got that zeal? We've got to get the word out. But over the years, when it's in the midst of its warfare, somehow hearts can be hardened. And you're not that patient and that kind and that loving with the brethren as you used to be. Maybe the light is not shining, it's dimming. But this is a huge issue. In um, Matthew 22, 36 to 40, I'm going to get you to look at a few texts in the context of you've lost this first love. Try and understand what that could possibly mean. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is basically saying, in all of the Bible, what's the greatest? What's the most important thing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If that's the most important thing, it's not an option, right? We have to have love. If we're going to be a Christian person or a Christian church, love has to be central. Perhaps it's even clearer in John 13. John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. What a high standard. So you must love, not 
might, but must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So there's the world if you love one another. So implicit in this is if we don't love one another, the world's not going to take notice. The world does not love one another, right? But the disciples, the followers of Christ, should love one another. Actually, it's a very good test. I have a number of tests when people say to me, well, how do you know if you're a Christian or not? That's one of the tests that I have. Do you love fellow Christians? Or do you want to get away from them as fast as you can? Book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15 says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And Ephesians is one of the very few epistles of the Apostle Paul which really has no criticism for the church members. Most letters of Paul are written because there were problems in the church. So it seems to me what little information I have that, if, that the church of Ephesus got off to a good start and has a lot of things to commend it for. We've seen some of them mentioned by Jesus in verses 2 and 3, but here's something that they did have, Ephesians 1.15, but seem to have lost it. Also, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, verses 1 and 2, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Well, we know that God loves us, right? And we need to dwell on that, and we actually preached on that last week. And live a life of love that's loving others as well as loving God just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'm always impressed with, with the writings of Paul, the, the way that he, he doesn't just give moral imperatives. He encourages us to do something in light of what Christ did for us. It's always Jesus and his death on the cross seems to be central to everything. And it's in interesting that Ellen White picked up on that in her ministry, and she says to, to preachers and speakers, and, and really all of us, make Christ central to every message. Now, it's a whole lot easier to make Christ central if you're preaching from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or even these verses in Revelation, than it is to, go, to make Jesus central to Ecclesiastes or Leviticus. But that's her encouragement make Christ central. And so Jesus has loved us, loved us while we were ungodly, saved us while we were ungodly. So then, of course, we need to love one another. The disciples learned that the hard way. And I think most of us learn it the hard way. But if Christ is living in you and Christ is living in me, we have an affinity, right? And that was interesting when Cecil and I just went to Norway and in England. Now, when we go to Norway, my Norwegian is not very hot. It's pretty sad. And it's a very quick way for me to make a fool of myself. So I do a lot of listening, but a lot of it I don't understand. 
And sometimes this will say, well, do you want me to translate for you? And sometimes I'll say no, sometimes I'll say yes, depending what, what mood I'm in. But I don't understand a lot of stuff that goes on there, and yet I have an affinity with those people because Christ is in them. Then we go over to England, and the church we attended there was in a place called York. York is, is always there on the tourist books as a place to visit. It is, it is a very interesting place, and we'd never worshipped there in York before, so we found this little Adventist church uh, just on a kind of an ordinary street, kind of tucked away, and there there were, I'm not sure how many people, um, but quite a small congregation, and, and an affinity. Now, they're speaking in English, so I pretty much understood what they were talking about, but again, you have this, this connect, connection with them. But you can travel the world, you can go to different countries, you can be in places where you don't understand a word, and yet there's still a bond there. Now, we have to fan that flame of love here in the Anderson Church. We need to not be satisfied with anything less than what Jesus is asking from us as he wanted uh, these Ephesian, uh, these church members in Ephesus to really love one another. So those are a few texts. I could give you others, especially in the epistles of John. It's all over the epistles of John to, as a test of whether you're a Christian or not. If you don't love the brethren, you're not a Christian. Now, I know some of the brethren can get under your skin and be in your face and, and give you a hard time, but you still got to love them. Why? Because that's what Jesus did with us. Were we nice to Jesus before he saved us? The Bible says we're not only ungodly, that we were his enemies, that we were the wicked ones, that we were against him. So he didn't save, he didn't die for his friends. He died for those who hated him. The whole human race is in sin, and Jesus died for the whole human race. We go to verse 5, and Jesus tells us to do three things in the imperative. The first thing he says is remember. The second thing he says is repent. And the third imperative is the word do. So let's look at those phrases in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. So this is a falling for the church members. It looks like he's addressing the whole church here, that somehow, some way, the church in its busyness in dealing with heresy, in doing the work of the Lord, had somehow missed out on this element of love for God, for, for their fellow brethren, or for their fellow man outside of the church. Somehow, somewhere, they were deficient, but they didn't used to be deficient in this. There were people in that church could remember the good days in Ephesus, the best days in Ephesus. Now, you have to be careful when, when uh, I, I say this, I have to be careful because there were things that you could do 30 years ago that you can't do today in the church. Society changes. 
people change. The love is, should be constant, and the love should get stronger and stronger, don't you think so? I mean, none of us should feel that because you followed Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you love him less now than you did in the past, because I don't believe that for a minute. Love should deepen, love should mature. Yes, it takes on different forms, just as it does in, in a love relationship within a marriage. It goes through different phases, but the love should be deeper and sweeter as you get to know, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, remember, think about how it used to be. Maybe as a church collectively or individually, as it used to be. And then he says, repent. Remember the height from which you've fallen, repent. What does repentance mean? It means if I'm going in this direction, and this direction is, is not bringing me closer and closer to God, and it's not bringing me closer and closer to the brethren, and I'm certainly not doing what I should for the world, then I need to turn around. That's all that repentance means. It means a turning around in your thinking, in your attitude. Take this seriously is what repentance means. Does it sometimes include sorrow for sin? Yes, sometimes it does, but not always. The main idea on repentance is an about turn. You're going in the wrong direction if love is not paramount, right? individually or collectively, then turn around. And then, he, and then he says, and do. That also is in the imperative, and do the things you did at first. You started well. And I've showed you two texts in Ephesians that would indicate that. You started well. Maybe they were even known for their faith and love. They were shining bright. But somehow, some way, they lost their focus. You know, let me show you a, a really powerful text in the book of Isaiah. They say that the book of Isaiah is the great gospel book in the Old Testament, and there are a number of passages that talk of the nation of Israel as, um, as a group of people that God redeemed and brought out a bondage so that their lights would shine, right? And most of you who, have, who are familiar with, with the history of Israel, you know that they had periods of time when they did really, really well. But of course, many times when they did not do well. So here in Isaiah 60, <coughs> excuse me, great, great passage Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. It was always God's will that he would work through his people. One of the great questions in the Bible is, why did he ever stick with the nation of Israel? Why did he ever raise them up, and why, did, why was he so patient with them? And of course, we know there's always a remnant of a remnant of a remnant that, that he works through. But it was God's will that through the nation of Israel that they would, their light would shine so brightly, as we see with a little example with Solomon when the Queen of Sheba came, and she said, the half has not been told. 
And have you ever read, we're not going to go into this, I think it's in Leviticus, have you ever read the promises that are given to Israel? No miscarriages. Ladies, is that a promise or what? No defective children. Your shoes will not wear out. The diseases of the surrounding nations will not come upon you. Well, we know quite well what came on the Egyptians because we have some of their mummies. Now, a lot of their mummies are from the, the royalty and so on, but we can see they had many, many, many diseases amongst them. None of that, none of it at all would come on the nation of Israel as long as they are obedient to God. That was the key. So tremendous promises given to them, and these are glorious here. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. I'd encourage you sometime to, to study out, um, to, to put some serious study into what God wanted to do through the nation. You'll never understand many of the great prophecies in the Old Testament unless you do that kind of study and see how the whole world was to be drawn to the nation of Israel. And the whole point was to learn about Jehovah, the one who blesses them financially with their health, with every area of their life. I visited uh, one of my friends on the East Coast not too long ago and he had been contacting some Jewish people, he's a Seventh-day Adventist, and he said, why are you people, why do you excel in so many areas of life? And if that's true, then it goes back to how God blessed his people uh, and gave them such tremendous promises so, so long ago. So repent and do the things you did at first. When you first come to Christ, it should be no problem to read your Bible. It should be no problem to have worship each day. It's usually no problem to share your faith. Certainly no problem to come to church. And I remember when I first uh, came to Christ and joined the church that I, I would jump on two buses just to get to prayer meeting. And you know the weather in England can be pretty tricky at times. So you're standing in the rain waiting for those buses to come, and it never seemed a burden. And if I had not gone to one of those prayer meetings, maybe I wouldn't be a pastor today. It's possible, because the pastor said something that day that really touched me. And I spoke to his wife afterwards, and she says, well, why don't you go and visit Newbold College in England? And I'd never heard of Newball College, but that was my first invitation to check out Adventist education, and it wasn't long after that that I was taking a GED exam. What do I know about an American GED exam? To get into, into Newball College and study for the ministry. Those things were not hard. Gave up my clothes, gave up my music, gave up my friends, and to this day I can say I gave nothing up. Because everything that I gave up, in quotes, God always had something better for me, always. 
So the God who, who gives us these tremendous promises and this wonderful counsel here, he's doing it because he's our best friend. And if you've got a really good friend, they will not only tell you your good points, but they will also at times tell you your weak points. And they will always love you through that relationship. Now, we know with the nation of Israel that ultimately they failed. Yes, Messiah was born, but Israel, many of those prophecies we read in the Old Testament were never fulfilled in the totality. The nation split up. They started fighting amongst themselves, and God couldn't do through them what He ultimately wanted to do through them. And so He raised up the Christian church. And here we are as part of the Christian church, Seventh-day Adventist, and still the counsel is there. You've lost your first love. Remember, repent, and do. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, one of the questions I've always had is, how did it turn out in Ephesus? Because here this takes us to maybe A.D. 90, or around there, near the end of the first century. What about the church in Ephesus in the second century? There is a writer called Irenaeus who um, was very well acquainted with, with Ephesus, and he said the church did learn the lesson of loving God, loving one another, and loving their community. So the lampstand was, not, repla- was ta- not taken away, and yet, of course, you go to some of these places in the Middle East today, and you see mainly Muslims and very, very few Christians. You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, these, which I believe were Gnostics, which I also hate. They went from one extreme to the other, the Gnostics. They were either ascetics, where they would kind of starve the body because the body was, was irrelevant to them and just feed the spirit, so to speak. And so they'd have that extreme, or then the other extreme, just have fornication, adultery, and things like that, and it was no big deal, because after all, the body's going to be destroyed anyway. The only thing that really counts is the spirit. None of those extremes are acceptable for a Christian. They're obviously obnoxious to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they should be obnoxious to us. And we should take sin out in all of its forms, whether it be sexual, whether it be pride, whether it be gossip, whatever form it takes, we should take it out. We should expose it. And yet, in doing that, we need to love one another. There's a balance there, isn't there? Jesus somehow got that balance. He could take a woman caught in adultery, and somehow he could encourage her, where are your accusers? Lady, your sins are forgiven. Wow, what good news is that for that woman? She was about to be stoned to death. No hope of eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's end on this promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. 
Some think this idea of overcoming is the main theme in the book of Revelation. It's certainly a very important one. It comes over and over and over again in these uh, letters to the churches. And also in chapter 12, verse 11, where it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And it takes us right back to, to the very end of the book of Revelation, where it talks about... Um, Revelation 22, verse 14, where it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes or who keep the commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. What a tremendous promise this is. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's make sure, Anderson Church, that we're not we are in a warfare. That's why the word overcoming is used, right? We're in a warfare. And in a warfare, we can't be fighting with one another, right? If you have the American troops fighting with one another in Afghanistan, you know they're going to be beat. It's obvious. So somehow, with all of our differing ways of doing things and talking about things and looking at things, somehow love has to be supreme. We have to respect one another. We have to listen to one another. We have to learn from one another. And when God starts moving in our congregation, we need to facilitate that. We need to encourage that. Timothy, they say, was a bit of a timid pastor. I don't know if that's true. Timid Timothy is the way I think of him. And the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, God has done something wonderful in your life. Fan into flame. Right? Fan the flame. So here, as my parting shot with the Anderson Church, let's fan into flame in the Anderson Church love for God, love for one another, and love for the ungodly, the world out there. By this, people will know that we're truly His followers. Let's pray. Gracious God, the Scriptures teach us that You are love. And there's probably not a one of us this morning that would, would dispute that, even though at times we wonder and we find ourselves in situations that can see so, seem so horrendous that we wonder if God really does love us. But we see it with Jesus on Calvary. So we always have to go back to that. We thank you, he's our high priest. We thank you that he's walking through the sanctuary of the Anderson Church, that he's living within our hearts. He knows, he knows our motivation. He knows our desires. And we have no reason to believe, Lord, that the motivation in Ephesus was wrong, but somehow they lost their focus. They lost their way. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ corrected them. May he correct us too. Give each one of us, Lord, the spirit of repentance. Until Jesus comes, it will be repentance, it will be remembering, and it will be doing. And we'll be thanking you throughout eternity that you didn't give up on us, but you loved us with an everlasting love. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.